Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick second before the episode to give a trigger warning for mentions of sexual assault. While we do not go into a lot of detail about the topic, we do discuss scenes in the movie that depict sexual manipulation or assault. Please know that it's not a big part of this episode, but I wanted to put this warning in at the start. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Ready? Three, two, one, now. Hey guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome back to Pop Ticket. I'm Dee. I'm Caster. We like movies. And we love each other. Okay, so I just want you to imagine this. A cute college couple from Denton, Ohio, wherever that is, go to meet their old professor after becoming recently engaged. They get caught in a storm and go to a house for help and are allowed in as a convention of Transylvanians meet up and sing about a strange cultural dance. The couple are informed that the convention of Transylvanians are there for a scientific breakthrough of a Frankenstein-esque cross-dressing performing scientist. The genius of this scientist has discovered how to create life. After a sensual display of his beautiful creation, a motorcycling rock star is butchered. The couple is creepily seduced by the scientist. The new life form escapes and the young Janet Weiss and Brad Majors discover themselves sexually in many different ways. Some dances happen, a pool shows up at one point, and aliens decide to kill one another. All that and some frighteningly catchy music is what you need to get the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a cult classic written by Richard O'Brien, who plays Riff Raff, and Jim Sharman, the director of the movie. Full of terribly catchy tunes, Rocky Horror initially was not seen as the classic that it is now. That changed when audience participation emerged at Waverly Theatre in New York City a year after the movie's release and three years after the original stage performance. Rocky Horror is an homage and parody of the B-horror movies of the 1930s that lasted several decades. Movies that would create universal monster films like The Wolfman, Frankenstein, and Dracula. These B-movies, while classics, were plagued by The Hayes Code, which is completely done away with in Rocky Horror. The Hayes Code, for those who are not familiar, was a form of self-censorship that states what movies were allowed to depict if they were a part of the Motion Picture Association of America. The B-horror movies that are parodied were all released in the same period that the Hayes Code was in place. Despite its weak performance upon first release, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is the record holder for the longest theatrical release in history because theaters continue to play this movie to this day. So now, this is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. start by talking about Tim Curry, aka Frankenfurter, a little bit more. Rocky Horror Picture Show was actually Tim Curry's uh, film debut. Uh, knowing that, I just want to say that Tim Curry is the sexiest part about this movie and is an icon that we love at the Pop Ticket Podcast. I also want to point out that when it comes to Frankenfurter, we are going to refer to Frankenfurter with he, him pronouns. Tim Curry in this movie singing in six inch heels though is as iconic as it gets. To have been able to do this whole movie singing and dancing and running around as much as they do in those big ass heels is extremely impressive and I'm saying this for the millionth time on this podcast but Tim Curry deserves an Oscar for it. Tim Curry actually originally portrayed Frankenfurter with a German accent, but after hearing a woman on the bus speaking with a posh accent, he decided that his character should sound like the Queen, which is honestly, in my opinion, a lot more fitting for the character. Um, he also stated that his accent was also modeled after his own mother, which I just thought was great. I would expect that uh, Frankenfurter's mother <laughs> probably had a lot of influence on why he is the way he is also, so yikes 
<laughs> that just yikes <laughs> in the movie during the infamous dinner scene uh director jim Sharman decided to only let tim curry know what the surprise of the scene was that surprise being a chopped up eddie that had been served for dinner because he wanted to make sure the rest of the cast was genuinely shocked during the reveal talking about tim curry like just as the actor is really important because it's like he made this role his own. Yeah. And I just, I, I love everything he's been in, but I think, like, being that this is his first movie and probably his most iconic, yeah. bonkers, balls-to-the-wall role just ties his whole career together. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the last projects that he's been in has, was uh, the 2016 Rocky Horror, where he uh, yeah. reprised his role as the criminologist. Yeah, I think that this role, along with Pennywise in the It series, are probably his two most, like, absolute famous roles. Um, and, like, Laverne Cox did a good job in the 2016 remake, but, like, come on, nobody can top Tim Curry in this. I don't know. I, no, I, I, no, no, I, I no, like no, no. Laverne Cox. Listen, I like Laverne one. Cox, too, but come on. Tim Curry's an icon. I do come think on. I do think that it was better to have a trans woman yes. actually play Frankenfurter. I agree. But, um, yeah, of course, I think Tim Curry just kind of put something in it that, like, only he could. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that if you were going to redo it, I think Laverne Cox is pretty much the only, like, yeah. popular actor that I could see. Um playing this role again yeah but um now to go to our easily the next most iconic actress and role in this movie our damsel in distress who better wise up janet weiss susan sarandon may i just say was fine back in the day and she's also like not modernly known for being like a really hardcore leftist and so like we have to stand she's also just an amazing actress who's well-known for her roles in movies like Thelma and Louise, Dead Man Walking, and Woodcock. Yeah, Thelma and Louise will always be one of my favorites. She's such a talented actress. That is actually another movie that we want to cover on the podcast one day. I actually introduced that movie to Dee. We watched yeah. that a little while Well, back. I, you did. I knew that the movie existed. Of course, it's a like, pop culture. We, we did watch it together for yeah. the first, well, for me for the first time. Yeah. And I mean, talk about uh, homoerotic subtext. Um, what do you mean subtext? That's just context. That's true. <laughs> they, they kissed each other. Something that I really admire about Susan is how committed of an actress she is and was during this movie. Because of a variety of reasons, such as Rocky Horror Picture Show was filmed during October through December in Windsor, England, the castle where they had shot the majority of the movie was apparently always leaking, according to Barry Boswick, and there were multiple scenes where Susan was either in the rain or in a pool. She had developed pneumonia while filming. According to Richard O'Brien, during the floor show scenes, she was apparently shaking with a fever. And speaking of Susan going through it during the course of this movie, during the dinner scene when Barry Boswick pounds his fist on the table, he accidentally hits Susan Sarandon's hand, and you can actually see her reaction in the film. Like, they kept that in there. Yeah, and I mean, if, if someone I was working with fucking bashed <laughs> my hand into a table, you'd probably be able to see my reaction, too. Actually, fun fact, uh, during the floor show scene... Susan steps on Barry Boswick's foot with the, her big ass heel, and you can see that in the movie as well. So she, like, in a way, gets him back. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, one thing that I really enjoy about Janet as a character and, like, Susan Sarandon's kind of portrayal of it that I think really um, was her putting herself into this character is that I noticed that with the aesthetic of the movie, Janet is a much more independent woman. And this would make sense for the time, being that it's supposed to be August or November 1974, somewhere around there. It's kind of ambiguous. Uh, we're going to get into that in a second. But it can also explain why Janet is not scared to show herself as a woman having the freedom to express her sexuality more openly. And is this was something that was becoming very mainstream in the 70s during the second wave of feminism. Yeah, Janet's character is an interesting one to me. Both Brad and Janet are portrayed to be these naive, innocent 
kids, so to speak, at the beginning of the film. But as the film progresses, uh, we do see this sort of independence coming from Janet, especially regarding her sexuality and her sexual awakening that happens within the movie. Like, at first she's apprehensive to what's happening at the castle with Frankenfurter and the Transylvanians, as I feel everyone would be. I mean, except for Brad, apparently, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but when she is quote-unquote seduced, and I do say that word very loosely, or something changes within her. Almost immediately, she does feel guilty for cheating on Brad, but even that changes quickly when she finds Rocky, a person who she already has expressed attraction to towards the beginning of the movie, she then very willingly has sex with Rocky and enjoys it. Her pleasure and excitement by what has happened is also confirmed during the floor show in her Rose Tints My World verse. all of that Janet's perspective on that night's events is a more positive one and she feels more open about herself and her sexuality um, focusing not necessarily on the flip side of things but on a slightly different perspective we can move on to Brad like Janet he's portrayed as innocent and especially naive at the beginning of the film when first arriving at the castle he seems to be intrigued by the Transylvanians folk dancing and reassures Janet that everything will be all right they just need to play along for now and pull out the aces when the time is right. He honestly seems more into whatever is happening than Janet is at first, but notably his demeanor changes when first meeting and talking to Frankenfurter. Yeah, when Brad and Frankenfurter first meet, Brad like is really trying to puff out his chest and shit. Like Frankenfurter is this like tall, slender dude and I definitely thought while watching that like Brad's hyper masculinity might be an attempt to fight off this sort of attraction to Frankenfurter because Frankenfurter's obviously flirting with pretty much everyone he comes in contact with. Pretty much. Now this um, behavior from Brad culminates Who? to the end of the movie during the line dance scene. Brad is, you know, made up like everybody else. He's kind of a bad bitch. He's got his corset on. And he's letting go of this idea and construct of masculinity. And his verse during Rose Tint My World goes into this as well in the same way that Janet's does, where he says... I feel is a very important topic to discuss when mentioning him like Janet he experiences a kind of sexual awakening in the movie too but instead of feeling empowered like Janet does he feels confusion like he says that he does feel sexy but he also feels lost and he wants someone to take this dream away it's not necessarily that he feels negatively about the events that happened at the castle, but I think Brad may feel a little taken advantage of by Frankenfurter. Especially if he, if like his sexuality is already something that he is kind of questioning on his own, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I think like take this dream away, it's kind of that line where you either have to choose to live in this like dream per se, like Frankenfurter does and like the Transylvanians do, or be kind of tight-knit like uh, Brad and Janet were before the dream, yeah. in in a sense. Because Brad looks just like every other college boy, same with Janet. They look very, um, exactly like my grandparents looked around this time, <laughs> let's say. And so I, thinking of that, you know, when he says... You take this dream away when he asks himself what's come over me i think it's definitely telling that he's hurt. going through you're disgusting <laughs> please keep that <laughs> <laughs> no but I, I think it is really telling these characters both the i would say the top three main characters 
are all kind of going through a journey of identity. And I think it's interesting how the writer Richard O'Brien has described his gender identity. Since this show and movie was released, he's identified in his own words as 70% male and 30% female, or as a third sex, as he puts it. Some of his statements in regards to trans-identifying people did garner some controversy that Garner himself compared to the same controversy that J.K. Rowling has brought up because she's a hardcore turf. Leaving J.K. Rowling alone to kill her own career, though, I think that this identity that may be modernly considered bi-gender or non-binary that O'Brien is describing, however, whichever way O'Brien wants to describe himself is totally up to him. I do think that his identity is depicted in the three main characters of Frankenfurter, Janet, and Brad. Frankenfurter is able to seamlessly pretend to be both Brad and Janet when he pleases, but all the while is this psychotic, erotic force due to Curry's performance. Janet and Brad are very reminiscent of the time that this came out, Janet being a little more independent, but traditional all the same, and Brad trying to be macho, but is kind of nervous. I just wanted to point that up as we finish looking at our main characters. Um, moving on to Patricia Quinn and the character of Magenta, Patricia was actually one of the original cast members from the stage production of Rocky Horror, who also reprised her role in the film. Richard O'Brien, Tim Curry, and Little Nell also were original cast members of the stage production. Now, one of the main reasons Patricia Quinn was interested in being in the play production of Rocky in the first place was because she loved the opening song, Science Fiction Double Feature, which she sang in the play. However, when it came time for the movie, Richard O'Brien sang the opening song while Patricia lip-synced along with it. So the lips in the infamous beginning of the movie were Patricia's, but it wasn't her voice. In the film's DVD commentary, Richard O'Brien actually reveals that he and Patricia Quinn had smoked something exotic before filming the song Damn It Janet, which honestly could explain why they were both super straight-faced and stiff during it. They were probably trying not to look incredibly high. <laughs> Uh, one scene that stands out to me that Magenta was in was the scene where Columbia and Magenta were uh, spying on Rocky and Janet as they're having sex. Like, they're making fun of Janet and her innocence when it comes to sex, but both of them are very obviously turned on by what they're watching, and both of them get kind of into it. This, I feel, is another example of the kinkier side to this movie. In Magenta's verse in Time Warp, she says the line, in another dimension with voyeuristic intentions. So we can see by pretty much that entire verse that she's into voyeurism along with Columbia. Because of when I was in theater and stuff, I always kind of thought of this scene in conjunction with um, the song Sandra D from Greece. Yeah. Because I feel like they're both kind of making fun of the innocence of like this new character. And so I... I, I not to say that they're similar at all, because one is like obviously like voyeuristic and the other one is just kind of mean, mm -hmm. mean girls style bullying. But those are definitely like two that just kind of pop in my head together yeah. at the same time. Yeah, they're, they're pretty reminiscent of one another, I would say. Yeah. Um, so, like I mentioned before, another original cast member of the stage production of Rocky Horror was Nell Campbell, also known as Little Nell, who played Columbia. Um, she was actually hired to be Columbia solely based on her tap dancing skills, which is honestly very impressive. And we get to see those skills during the time warp. I would love to get a job based off of one skill. Like, all the jobs I've ever had have to do with, like, a series of skills that <laughs> I've had to, like, train and acquire. And to just have one skill and just be like, yeah, hi, kid. That's the dream. Honestly. I think she was working at, like, a... I, I don't want to, like, mess up the story, but I think it was, like, a hot dog stand or something. Uh, something. I was going to say, it was, it was like probably a... a diner, knowing, like, the way all these stories go. It's like, I was working at a diner, and then he saw me tap dance, and the rest is history. Or in Norman Reedus's <laughs> case, at a motorcycle shop. Yeah, I was at a motorcycle shop, went to a party, got into a fight, yada yada, now I'm famous. And it's like, oh... Wow, okay, that's 
Yeah, something. I think it was Richard O'Brien and I want to say Patricia Quinn. I might be wrong, but they just like came across her and they were like, hey, you tap dance? You're hired. Like, yeah. Anyways. Um, Colum- Only it was that easy. Yeah, right. Columbia as a character is another one of Frankenfurter's playthings. And personally to me, she is just as much a victim in the story as Rocky, Brad, Janet, and Eddie were. And it's kind of sad that it's like that doesn't get focused on a little bit more, you know, because like we we tend to think of like, oh, like maybe Brad and Janet and especially Eddie were like the victims in this. But it's like even though she was kind of complacent in like, you know, kind of luring people in, I feel like it's still I don't know. She's still as much of a victim. Yeah. And I I think that that we we later are going to compare um Frankenfurter mm-hmm. to uh, similar to cult leaders, yeah. and I think that that's often something else that can be attributed to that is that like people who are a part of cults aren't always super responsible for what the leader does, yeah. but they are complacent in bringing more people in. Oftentimes, yeah. Now, one of my favorite characters besides Frankenfurter is. The legend Meatloaf, uh, who played Eddie, he's, in my opinion, one of the best singers in this uh, movie that's male-presenting. And otherwise, I think most of the men's voices are pretty lackluster. Like, Tim Curry Mm -hmm. is good, too, but personally, I I feel like a lot of his singing is just kind of harmonized talking. Meatloaf, though, does amazing, even though he's only on his one song, Hot Patootie. I disagree with you on that. I think that um, Brad, the uh, Barry Boswick, he he's a good singer, you know. Like he mm. he originated Danny Zuko in Greece and uh, was nominated for what a Tony Emmy. I don't fucking know which one it is, <laughs> but like yeah, but like he still got replaced by uh, Scientologist major John fucking Travolta. Nah, man. Nah, man. No, 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 no. I think he's a good singer, but whatever. Uh, well, going back to Meatloaf, um, what I find incredibly funny is how Meatloaf almost walked off the set after seeing Tim Curry in his full Frankenfurter costume during dress rehearsal. He was like, what the fuck did I get myself into? But honestly, that's just kind of toxic masculinity talking. Like, come on, men. Just wear some heels and fishnet- fishnets. You'll like it. Yeah, like, drive a motorcycle around a fucking science lab. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? Just fuck around, you know? Honestly, like, knowing that Janet and Brad make it out of this, I do like to describe, like, I like to think of them describing that night to their friends, like, um, got a flat tire, went, called some help, ended up in a fucking dance party with some dude doing drag. Who knows what happens? Anyways, in the L.A. stage production, Eddie and Dr. Scott were played by the same actor. Uh, When Meatloaf was brought on board to play Eddie, he was pretty disappointed when he found out that he wasn't playing Dr. Scott, too. He said that he actually was a pretty good Dr. Scott in an interview. Yeah, no, he also said that um, he felt like the movie isn't as good as the (laughs) stage production because he isn't Dr. Scott. And I mean, like, hey, believe in yourself, dude. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. So, moving on to Rocky, uh, the thing about Rocky's actor, Peter Hinwood, is that he did not sing his parts, and all his speaking lines were cut from the movie. A singer named Trevor White, who was affiliated with Pink Floyd, The Kinks, and Led Zeppelin, uh, sang Rocky's songs in the movie, but was not actually credited for them. Peter Hinwood literally does not say a line at all during this movie. He's just used... For the pretty face and his excellent abs. Excellent abs, huh? Mm-hmm. 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 I'm a muscle fan. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? <laughs> no, you're not. Don't lie to the people. <laughs> no, but it is, it's not that surprising to learn all of that about uh, Peter Henwood, considering he was actually an underwear model with no acting experience or dancing experience in it. I mean... You can see it in the movie. Rocky has no rhythm at all. I mean, he's only, uh, what, four or five hours old? So, like, I'm just maybe seven we can... hours old. Oh, it's seven. Seven. It's seven, it's seven hours, hours old. old. Yeah. Seven hours. I don't does. think that's accurate. 
Oh, when he died. Yeah. Okay. By the time that he died, he, he was literally only seven hours old. And actually... But when he sings that, he's not seven hours old. They just unwrap him and he's just like... No, he, he was born that night. I know, no, no, I know that, but what I'm saying is, doesn't he sing that, like, at the beginning when he first gets unwrapped? No, he sings that in Rose Tints My World. I'm oh, okay, that's my bad. So, yeah, and actually, that's actually the perfect song to reference when talking about how Rocky has absolutely zero rhythm. When you see them, like, do, like, their, what, what's it called when they kick their legs up? I forget I just called it a line, line dance. Line dance, yeah, whatever. Definitely not called that. I feel like it's, it is. That's not what it oh, is. Oh, whatever. Yeah, if you watch that scene when they're doing that and they're kicking their legs up, he barely raises his leg. Like, he raises it like a yeah. couple inches up. <laughs> yeah, step, ball, change, kick, step, but listen, kick. Uh, he tried his best. That That's what matters he most. He did. Anyways, um, so now that we've had a chance to go over some of like the main characters and actors in this movie, we want to take a little while to talk about the creator of Rocky Horror, Richard O'Brien, who played Riff Raff in the movie, and focus a little bit more on the writing portion of the film. So Richard O'Brien wrote Rocky Horror during his downtime when he was an unemployed actor. O'Brien loved science fiction and horror films and projected that love into the songs of Rocky, particularly the opening song, Science Fiction Double Feature, which is composed of references to old B-movie science fiction films of the 1930s. Now, this movie touches on pretty much everything that was considered taboo during the time that the previously mentioned Hayes Code was active in Hollywood. There's bisexuality, transgender and gender non-conforming people, voyeurism, exhibitionism, implied incest, cannibalism, aliens, or it's all in this movie. The Hays Code specifically had rules against almost any crime being explicitly depicted. This code also didn't allow most references to sex unless it was, quote, seen as necessary to the plot. Using vulgar language and certain dancing styles were also just big no-nos. My favorite thing that was not allowed to be shown in films is uh, white slavery, which is wild that... Sex and white slavery, big no-no. But black slavery, hey, okay. Um, but I think it's safe to say that Rocky Horror breaks all of these in under two hours. After that light history lesson, though, I also want to point out that Rocky Horror has one of the best intros in movie history. As someone who did theater in high school, I am a big fan of musicals, but I'm not nearly as diehard as some of the people who I did theater with. When the movie begins, it's just, it's such a movie lover's dream. It just bothers me that the teeth are not very nice. But I will acknowledge that I'm a snob about teeth. I'm not going to deny it. It's just, it, it, that's the one thing that gets me about this opening scene. The beginning sequence of the movie was actually inspired by Man Ray's painting, The Lovers, now more commonly known as The Lips, because it's pretty much a painting of this giant pair of lips in the sky uh it's actually really beautiful and honestly in a way a really disturbing painting i just i thought it was pretty cool looking and i think that the i mean it's an iconic beginning to the movie it's i think it's great oh yeah no it's definitely better than the 2016 version yes <laughs> yes 100 <laughs> percent um something that i do wish they ended up doing was O'Brien's initial desire for making the first 20 minutes of the movie in black and white, like the Wizard of Oz, then switched to color when Frankenfurter enters into the movie. But of course, this idea was scrapped by 20th Century Fox. For me, though, when first watching Rocky back when I was 11 years old, the pivotal moment that I knew that this was going to be a mindfuck of a movie was when Frankenfurter takes off his cloak, revealing his corset, fishnet stockings, and platform heels during Sweet Transvestite. And for me, that transition from black and white to color would have perfectly fit there. I think that they really missed out by not including just sun, having kind of a color like super spectrum of light um reveal with frankenfurter yeah especially with 
all the rainbows in this movie is just it's i think that o'brien was definitely in the right there and the 20th century yeah. fox was just being a bunch of pricks but yeah so especially considering how muted everything seemed before like arriving at the castle like if you look back at the wedding scene and them just driving and stuff everything is very just muted yeah it's black white gray and beige and pink and blue and janet's and janet's case and barely though even then even then like, but mm. even then they're pale they're pale they're not saturated you know yeah they're white people honey cut that out <laughs> don't you put don't leave that in there the movie takes place in at least 1974 and was confirmed in the film through Nixon's resignation speech that was playing on Brad and Janet's radio when they break down on the side of the road. This general confirmation of the year was something that Richard O'Brien was not a fan of because it limited the movie to a specific time frame, which I understand why he wouldn't want that. This movie feels very out of this world, therefore out of time itself. You get 60s vibes, you get 70s vibes, which is definitely the point of the movie. It's a film that messes with time and space. Yeah, I mean, literally. I mean, yes, we get, like, these vibes from these actual time frames, mm -hmm. but there's also fucking aliens. Yes, yeah, literally. With lasers. Like, we get Star Wars in this movie. What if this was, like, an unconfirmed Star Wars movie? Like, George Lucas was just in the background, like, sure. No, but something else that is interesting to note about the time frame of this movie is that Nixon resigned in August of 1974. However, the criminologist states that the events of Rocky Horror happened in November. O'Brien actually talked about this inconsistency and said that Brad is supposedly such a nerd that he recorded Nixon's resignation speech just so he could listen to it on repeat. And honestly, the day Trump is gone, I think I might just do the same with his last slurred, incoherent attempt at a speech. <clears throat> when we get into the movie and these two are driving, though, I was just thinking the whole time about how, I f how crazy it was that people went centuries millennia without gps and just kind of hope to find their way someplace this little scene is kind of an homage to the trope and horror when two attractive kids are in a car that that car is going to break down like something's going wrong only for them to like find a house that says enter at your own risk and think yeah let's go in that bitch let's let me let's go find shelter there like, there's not somebody with an axe, hatchet, machete, knife, chainsaw ready to cut them up. Like, you know what? I'm going to just stay in the car. Um, honey, going back to that GPS comment, you know maps existed, right, sweetie? You fucking Gen Z piece of shit. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love you. Caster. <laughs> Do you know that maps existed? Because yes. I tried to get you to do directions for me. And your your logic Listen, when giving I directions. Listen, I know where I no, am. No. I know your where logic I am. when giving directions. I always know where I know where I'm going. I know where I'm headed. Pastor is I know awful my at path. giving directions. I listen to my heart. I feel the wind change. I can Yeah, Brad and Janet definitely play into the naive teen trope from many horror films. But another trope that we see in this movie that often appears in movies and shows are depictions that represent different colors for different characters, specifically using pink to designate feminine people, most often women, and blue for masculine people, most often men. In this movie, Janet is wearing a pink dress and Brad is wearing a blue sweater vest. Also, during the Brad and Janet bedroom scenes, Janet's room is tinted red and Brad's room is tinted, of course, blue. This trope with colors also fits into the different uses of rainbows throughout the movie, something we'll touch on in a sec, and would have fit in if they decided to do the black and white to color transition. The black and white would represent the dull and unsaturated nature of Janet and Brad's lives before Frankenfurter, and the colors representing the new experiences and the life that came after him. Moving into what actually is in the movie, though, and written, um, there's a ton of LGBT references throughout this movie. One is 
when creating Rocky, Frankenfurter drips rainbow-colored fluid into the water holding Rocky. This is seen more, again, when Rocky is standing in the tank that is now a literal rainbow and is dancing around in it. During Touch Me, all the characters are flashing through Janet's vision. As she gets off, they are shrouded in rainbow colors that are blinking back and forth. And finally, at the end, as Riff Raff and Magenta go back to Transylvania, there is a rainbow over the castle. However, when researching this episode, funny enough, I found out that the Pride flag would not be flown for the first time at Pride for another three years. So, I don't know. Maybe that was just O'Brien, like, you know, kind of projecting, or maybe it was he was ahead of the time. I, I don't know what it was, but I do find it interesting in a modern context to see, like, all these rainbows that kind of represent what we think of as the pride flag and such. Yeah, and speaking of LGBT symbols, Frankenfurter displays a pink triangle on his lab coat, which of course was infamously used by the Nazis during World War II to label people they believed to be gay in concentration camps. And at the time Rocky Horror Picture Show was created, the gay rights movement had really just started to gain traction in America, and the awareness of the persecution of LGBT people during the Holocaust started to become more known. This was also around the time that the Pink Triangle was reclaimed as a symbol of gay pride and awareness for gay discrimination, rather than a symbol associated with the horrors of the Holocaust. Now, I just want to I want to move into the worst part of this movie, which are the bedroom scenes with Janet, Brad, and Frankenfurter. These scenes are very rapey. Um, it's not a great look in 2021, especially, and it's it's not necessary at all. But I would say that as it fits into the movie, it does show Frankenfurter and his manipulation of people in a sexual way. At the same time, these scenes kind of show the attraction that is present for almost everyone whenever Frankenfurter is around. Frankenfurter is almost kind of like a cult leader in this way. Frankenfurter is smart, cunning, controlling, and uses his sexuality to get his way in the way the likes of Jim Jones, Charles Manson, and other cult leaders are known to have done as well. While Brad is enjoying Frankenfurter in his own way of kind of self-discovery, Frankenfurter is manipulating Brad. And it's important to point out that Brad is discovering a pseudo-attraction that he's never been able to act on, but it's still not done in a pleasant way to watch yeah and we touched on uh you know frankenfurter kind of as a cult leader a little bit earlier on and i i believe o'brien created those scenes as a way to display frankenfurter's manipulation for not only brad but for janet as well i mean of course it is wrong to manipulate a partner into sex especially since it was established that both of these characters were virgins However, given the context for the rest of the film and Brad and Janet's verses in Rose Tin My World, I think the original intention was to showcase Frankenfurter's allure and how he uses sex to get his way, rather than be a commentary on sexual assault. Like, looking at those scenes through a 2021 lens, however, we can all agree that Frankenfurter was out of pocket. And I definitely agree with your comparison on Frankenfurter as a cult leader, because, you know, he is. It's, it's textbook manipulation. Now, moving on, though, um, one thing that does work about this whole movie is the references. I, I'd love to think of this movie as a better remake of Frankenstein. Rocky is literally Frankenstein's monster with his fear of fire. Frankenfurter sounds like Frankenstein enough to where you can see the reference and then there's Riff Raff as this Igor character and this kind of metaphorical taking of innocence that Rocky does with Janet except it's more sexual than how Frankenstein's monster um, murders the little girl in that story. I just, I love the idea of using kind of B-movie science fiction and horror as a telling of a story for a musical. I, it just, it's very satisfying and I think it really works well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, something that I had found interesting just, you know, while watching the movie um, was in the scenes uh, where we see Frank's lab, um, the statues that were around the room, like considering we know that Frankenfurter has a Medusa device that turns his little playthings into statues, it makes you wonder if the other statues that we see in the room were also once people too? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think that's a great point. I just want to... I'm kind of wondering now that you point that out, though. Why the fuck did Frankenfurter have to butcher Eddie? Like, they were Listen. in the room where the Medusa machine is. And he chooses to get a pickaxe and cut him up. He was jealous. He saw what Eddie... Like, he saw Columbia's attraction to Eddie. He saw that Brad and Janet were like, okay, yeah, who is this guy? Like, you know, he's, like, singing and, you know, having fun and shit. Um, And he saw that Rocky was getting into the dancing, too. He was jealous. He wanted to completely eliminate Eddie as a character. Because he could... He is a cult leader. (laughs) He is the... He has to be the most dominant person in the room. Like... You know, that, that's the reason. Yeah, no, I mean, that, I think I think that's definitely fair. I just, I it, it does make me think like, oh, why butcher someone yeah. when you can, you know, turn them to stone? Mm-hmm. Like, anyway, though, speaking more about Meatloaf slash Eddie, um, the way that Frankenfurter reveals Eddie's body during the dinner is, I think, a great plot point. And reveals Frankenfurter's true nature. This kind of goes from like a goofy, sexy, you know, comedy musical to like a, oh, this is really dark. Because like we know that he kills Eddie, but it's just, it's a really well-structured scene with the song Eddie's Teddy, which is another of my personal favorites. Because this movie really reveals a lot about the deranged, crazy person that Frankenfurter is super quickly. Like, really flips it on Mm -hmm. kind of a dime. And then after the dinner, Columbia's short monologue is a great explanation of the craziness that that we we have been witnessing, but hasn't really been told to us in a serious manner. Because Frankenfurter is a man of little morals and some persuasion, according to the criminologist. I just want us to hear that monologue real quick. I can't stand any more of this. First, you spurred me for Eddie. And then you throw him off like an old overcoat for Rocky. You chew people up and then you spit them out again. I loved you. Do you hear me? I loved you. And what did it get me? Yeah, I'll tell you, a big nothing. Like a sponge, you take, 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 and drain others of their love and emotion. Yeah, well, I've had enough. You've got to choose between me and Rocky. So named because of the rocks in his head. This is where I think Frankenfurter is realizing he has started to lose control of his disciples in a way. And he, and as he loses control, this is where we start to move into the last act of the show. Going back to the criminologist, it's interesting because he's speaking to the audience and recounting this tale presumably from the future. However far ahead of time, it's hard to tell because it was purposely left ambiguous by O'Brien, of course. But this implies that the police must have done an investigation of what happened at the castle. Like, it really makes you wonder how much the police were actually able to find out and whether or not they even believed Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott. All they had was a big pit where the castle used to be, three people dressed in corsets, fishnet stockings, and heels, and a doctor who was involved in alien research. They really must have told quite the fucking tale to the police. Like... I mean, they're white, so, like, the police were probably, like... They probably... Like, the police got there in three seconds. They, like... Gave them, like, the fucking hotel treatment while in the police station. Gave them new clothes. Fucking Olivia Benson showed up for some reason, even though this isn't her area expertise. I just, you know, as as the police do. <clears throat> they, yeah. They probably, like, said to each other, ah, they must have smoked something exotic. They're they're British though. Wait, where no, they were in Ohio. What the fuck am I talking about? They're in Ohio. <laughs> I mean. 
I don't know why I'm thinking because it's. I mean, the setting wasn't whatever. Well, I mean, Tim Curry is British, and I think Richard O'Brien is. They're British. all British except for Brad and Janet, and Meatloaf. I think. I do love everything that Frankenfurter does in this movie, besides the quote-unquote seduction, as he calls it. I, I that's a big no-no, but everything else—just the attitude, the flair, the the dressing that he does—he. Uh, Especially at the end, because he somehow has a number prepared for when he gets caught up by his space siblings or whatever the fuck those two are. And he looks like a mess in this number. Like, it actually does, like, make me sad. Like, during I'm Going Home. I, I just want to know, though, why does Brad want to protect him? Why? What, what is the reason? What, what, what? Like, like, they're, like, sad that he's getting killed? It's, it's just a weird add-on to me, but mm -hmm. that's besides the point. So now focusing a little bit more on the setting uh, where they actually filmed Rocky Horror, it was uh, filmed at the Oakley Court in Windsor, England, which actually has since been turned into a hotel that you can currently stay at. And I definitely want to go one day, honey. Like, we're going. 100%. Okay. No, we're doing it. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, while filming, it apparently had no heat or bathrooms on set like at all and never mind <laughs> no well whatever <laughs> according to barry boswick there had been a designated room for warming up in between takes inside the castle until it actually caught on fire so that really sucks for them <laughs> um <laughs> this sounds like oh. one of those like cursed movie set Honestly, stories like, that you hear about like what? And honestly, like, Jesus Christ, can you imagine filming in October through December in England on set with no heat while filming scenes that involved water? Like, no wonder why Susan Sarandon got sick. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, no, that's that's not the move. I don't even see myself going to England for fun. So going to England when it's... Of course, I, I do want to go... Not that much compared to, like, anywhere else in the world, but sure. I definitely would love to see, like, I don't know, that fucking... Things from Harry Potter. That's the really... <laughs> that that one uh, phone booth where One Direction posed. That's what I want to see if we go to England. Of course. <laughs> sure. Anyways. Um, so something that might explain why, you know, the set was a little bit shitty... Um, and something that I have to point out about director Charmin was that he lobbied to keep the original stage cast, other than Boswick and Sarandon, of course, um, instead of casting uh, fashionable rock stars like 20th Century Fox wanted to. And they had apparently offered Charmin a reasonable budget if he were to do that. But since he decided to keep the original cast, they had given him a very tight shooting schedule and a quote-unquote modest budget. Uh, when reflecting on that decision, Charmin did say that keeping the original cast was crucial to the film's ultimate success. And I honestly wholeheartedly agree. It would not have been the same if you had Mick Jagger or Elvis in the movie instead of Tim Curry. I agree with you too, though, because the only person I could see maybe being in Rocky Horror from, like, music is, like, David Bowie. Like, that's oh, yeah. the only person yeah. I can imagine. Like, David Bowie as... Rock is Frankenfurter is okay. So, fun fact, the makeup artist who did David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust makeup, the iconic look, actually did Tim Curry's makeup for this movie. And it apparently took him, like, hours to do, though. So Tim Curry was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna do it myself. And so he just did. He started doing it himself. But that's really funny that you mentioned David Bowie because I had that little fun fact. See... When I, like, knew nothing about Rocky Horror, I always thought that Frankenfurter's makeup was supposed to be, like, making fun of Kiss. Because he I has, like, the white it. face and the heavy eyeliner. D not, not even a little bit. No, not even no. close. I was... Also, wasn't I mean, Kiss... to be fair, the first... Wasn't Kiss more popular in the 80s, or am I bugging? I'm not sure. I was born in 2000, dude. You're like, what do you want me to say? Yeah, whatever. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but... 
But uh, we also have to remember, I heard about Rocky Horror Picture Show because of Glee. Oh my That's... god, what a fucking Gen yep. Z thing I'm... to say. Oh, I'm ashamed. Man. I'm ashamed. But you oh, have to remember, no. I was watching Glee when I was like 11, 12 years old. Didn't get into musicals and stuff until I was, what, 15, 16 years old? So, I mean, it, I wouldn't, it, I got into so, it wait a minute. So you, at a different time. So you heard of Rocky Horror around 11 years old? Like, did you watch it around that age too, or did you watch it later? No, I, I, I didn't watch it. I just watched the glee like oh, episodes okay. that were talking about it because it was like for some reason the <laughs> i remember watching glee and glee had this big thing how like they wanted to do rocky horror but the school was like no you can't do rocky horror and i was like that's stupid the school should totally let them and now i'm like an adult and i'm like no absolutely not there is no way what? that that's acceptable there is a literal sexual assault scene, several, lots of sexual content. I don't even think Grease is very appropriate for, like, high schools no, to do. Because there's literal yeah. sexual assault in that, too. They're, yeah. So, like, yeah. So, I think Rocky Horror, which makes Grease look like a fucking vanilla parade, isn't allowed to be performed by 14 to 18-year-olds. I think you're wrong. No, okay. <laughs> you bring up valid points. Anyways. Uh, during our research for this episode, I found an interview that showed Tim Curry while on set of making Rocky Horror. And he talks about how exhausting the movie was for him compared to doing a stage production. He cited that he had to change uh, actions and things that he did for Frankenfurter because of the fact that movements in movie making don't need to be as dramatic because the camera is depicting how much is seen, especially when it's like tight on Frankenfurter's face. Whereas on stage, your presence has to fill the entire stage. He also said that he would get tired of staying in the makeup all day compared to only being in the makeup for a few hours when the performance was going on stage. And I personally totally get that, though, because as someone who, like, I had never worn makeup before I entered theater, and I remember after a play almost feeling naked and, like, my face and head feeling lighter after I took the makeup and costumes off. It was It's just, like, a different feeling. So, like, wearing those costumes all day, I'm sure, can make you feel yeah. very, uh, like, I don't know, just wound up and, like, not yourself, I guess. Yeah. But uh, to kind of move on from just kind of the making of the movie, I want to talk about some of the shots in this movie. Because in every movie, there's going to be a lot of standard close-ups, tracking, moving shots, um, things like that. But there were some in this movie that I thought were really creative, even if they weren't, like, groundbreaking or necessarily new to filmmaking. I would say the first being the camera shot facing out of the elevator as they go from kind of this old gothic mansion into this pink lab. That was great. I love that shot because it's just, it's so amazing. And it kind of shows, like, how you're going from what you think is, like, this gothic horror movie. And now it's this, like, science fiction, like, mm -hmm. spectrum of light, you know, shit that's going on. Um, then during the bedroom scenes, uh, the, while they are creepy, I do think that they do a really good, like, kind of bait and switch where they have... It looks like what they do is a creative cutaway shot where they switch Brad and Janet with Frankenfurter. And it's probably just like Sarandon like running in the room, getting on the bed, and then rolling off or having like a compartment where she can get away, and then having Tim Curry pop back up. If you look closer at the shot in Brad's room specifically, you can tell that it's Tim Curry in a wig, though. Like, it's pretty funny because it looks like a pretty bad wig. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You, you you never know. You know what I'm saying? You never know. Mm -hmm. No, but my my I think the best shot though in this whole movie is at the end where they're at the pool and they have the fog mm -hmm. and it like clears to show Frankenfurter in the center of the pool. It, it I'm not sure how they would have done it, 
because it just happens so fast. It almost looks like they took a shot of like Tim Curry in the pool and letting the fog travel over him and then reversed and sped it up. I, that's maybe what I would do if I had to do like create that shot, but they probably had technology that I've never even like thought of using. Um, but it's just really well done. And I just like that. It's just a little thing that the, uh, floaty that Frankenfurter's on says SX Titanic. Like it, it's not, has nothing to do with the film, but it's just like a little thing that I always like look at whenever I watch the movie. Um, and then finally, this has nothing to do with writing, directing, camera work, or anything else, but I just love that Dr. Scott's legs are covered in pantyhose and a blanket, and then, like, he reveals... Like, can he... He's not paraplegic, because he can move his legs. He's, like, dancing in the wheelchair. I, and But it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. No matter what the reason is, it adds nothing to the movie. I don't... But it is amazing. I don't think that he's like actually moving his legs i think it's like whatever the hell frankenfurter did after he like unmedusa them or whatever the fuck like whatever that little spell was the alien shit that he did i think it was him making his legs work i think i don't think that he was just sitting in a wheelchair for shits and giggles like yeah i, I don't know i, I mean it's a beautiful shot though. i mean it's sadly amazing. they never yeah, no, it is amazing. And I mean, sadly, uh, actors who live with a disability are very rarely yeah, cast, even today, to play somebody with a disability. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, you know, something that I think movies are trying to do better now. But mm -hmm. I still think that we have a long way to go until that happens. I just, I do enjoy just this reveal of this, like, wise old yoda looking doctor having like high heels and pantyhose at the ready when the time is right mm -hmm. um but i mean that's really the last thing that we had to say about the movie as far as like what our ending thoughts were and the our thoughts about the ending this movie just gives me a bunch of questions and it's in the best way the story isn't hard to understand because it does what a lot of movies do not like to do. It drops the audience into a story and just expects us to catch up. Like, why is there a castle in this rural-looking town in Denton, Ohio? Who fucking cares? Why is this Transylvanian conference happening at this castle? Because it is. There isn't an explanation. It's happening, and it's fun. Movies that really try explaining too much usually end up being like a weak plot exposition filled junk piece and rocky horror is anything but that um and for this reason after looking at our rating elements and rating everything around this movie i ended up giving rocky horror picture show four stars and as for me, uh, Rocky Horror will always have a special place in my heart. I was 11 years old when I first watched this movie and knew pretty much almost nothing about the LGBT community, drag, or any of the number of special qualities about this movie at the time. And I didn't realize what an icon this movie was or how influential it would end up being for me as a non-binary queer person. It's not only a cult classic, but the midnight showings and the culture surrounding this movie have been a safe haven and a place to express yourself for so many young queer people since 1973 to 1975. Um, after doing my star rating, I actually ended up with a 3.5, but I am going to go round up to a 4 because of its iconic nature. I got a 3.5 mainly because I'm looking at this film from a modern lens, and there are definitely some flaws with it overall from a storytelling perspective especially regarding Frankenfurter's sexual manipulation, but it's Rocky Horror. I'm giving it a four. Like, I just have to. Yeah, and no, so that's, that's really all we have to say. So, I mean, thank you guys for listening. And yeah, we hope you enjoyed this kind of new way that we uh, did our episode. Um, we're really looking forward to... Um, start releasing episodes more frequently and we really hope that you keep listening and keep 
you know, watching our social medias for updates and everything. So thank you so much for listening to this episode and we will be back soon. (laughs) Yeah. See you next time. If you want to interact with us and stay updated on all things Pop Ticket, visit our website, popticketpod.com, and go to the Contact Us page to see all our social media. If you would like to help support Pop Ticket, you can donate to us by going to our website and clicking Donate to find our Patreon, or you're able to donate from our homepage on our host website on Anchor. If you enjoy listening, another way to help Pop Ticket is to leave us good reviews and follow us on whatever platform you use, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you can even subscribe to us and like the videos on YouTube. We appreciate any and all support. Thank you so much for listening. Music created by Mark E. Beats. You can find him on SoundCloud or on Instagram at Mark underscore Daniels 3. Our art logo was created by at Lil underscore Draws Art on Twitter. Pop Ticket was created by Castor and Deep Rose and is edited by Deep Rose.